My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not yet had a chance to meet. Really thankful to uh, be, begin this last section of the book of Hebrews. As Pastor Shane said, we're in chapter 12. We'll be in verses 5 through 11. We're, we're really going to be uh, kind of just going straight here through the end. It's remarkable. Next week is, uh, I think it's one full year that we've been in the book of Hebrews. We've taken some breaks here and there for other uh, little short series, mini-series, topical uh, things that have come up throughout the year. But this is it. This is the home stretch, and it's been a remarkable year for us of studying this book of the Bible. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read these verses, pray, and then let's spend some time unpacking them together. So read along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this opportunity that we have today to gather together, to open the scriptures and to receive your words, your truth, your instruction in our lives. God, I ask and pray today that you would give us all teachable, soft hearts, that, that no matter what resistance or what walls we might want to put up, God, you'd help those walls to come crashing down, that we would be able to receive what it is you have for us today. God, for myself, I pray that you would guard my lips and you'd guard my tongue and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, in particular today, as we uh, open up this conversation about discipline and hardship and pain and suffering, um, God, I, I don't know everyone in this room, but I'd be willing to guess that there are more than just a few who are experiencing some hardships right now. And so God, I pray that your spirit would minister to them in a particularly special way here today. Strengthen them, encourage them, help them to see the goodness of God revealed in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. It's talking about pain and suffering and hardship. Happy Sunday. Welcome to Sound City Bible Church. That's one of the reasons why we like going line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible because we have to look at these subjects. And so talking about pain, talking about hardship, talking about the discipline of the Lord, I just was reflecting this week how I've seen in my own life as well as in the lives of people that I've ministered to or, or been in relationship with, how different people respond to pain. How different people respond to hardship. And so I spent a little bit of time thinking, and I came up with seven people that I've known 
Uh, seven different ways I've seen people respond to hardship, trials, and pain, both in just relationship as well as in pastoral ministry. So, uh, you know, as I read through this list, you can kind of try to self-identify a little bit, okay? So be gracious. No elbowing your spouse in the ribs. That's off limits right now. But uh, let's look at this list here. Number one is the avoider. The avoider, right? You guys have heard of fight, flight, or freeze. This is the flight, run away. This person says, I will literally do anything to avoid hardship, pain, and suffering. Sometimes this avoidance can look rather harmless or innocuous. It can look like, you know, just binge watching a lot of Netflix or just shopping for shoes all the time, some of you men. Okay, right? Like, who, who says you guys can't have a closet full of shoes? Come on. Right? This is the avoider. This is the, I'm just, I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm going to scoot over here. I'm going to just distract myself. Uh, this is a particularly popular one in the suburbs. Amen? We're going to just deal with our pain by not dealing with our pain. Just avoid it. Go have fun. Go to the lake house. Go spend money. Go to the mall. The second one is the pagan. The pagan. The pagan says, oh no, pain, hardship, suffering, I must have done something to really anger the gods. I must have done something to really deserve this. This is karma coming back at me. And their response to pain and hardship is guilt, fear, and insecurity. That's the pagan. You just never know where you stand with God or the gods. Number three is Mr. Freeze. This is the fight, flight, or freeze. This is freeze. This is the like, don't do anything and maybe it will go away, right? Just, uh, just, there's pain, there's suffering. I'm just going to pretend like it's not here. You know, like you ever watch like in a scary movie, you know, the bad guys like going through the house and there's like the people just hiding in the closet, like just stand here, pretend to be a teddy bear. Maybe they'll go away, right? That's, that's some people's response to, to pain or hardship, the freeze. I had somebody after the first service come up and say like, what about Mr. Anxiety? I'm like, yeah, that could be a type of, of, of Mr. Freeze. Just I'm in panic mode. I'm, I'm shut down. I can't do anything. I'm just going to sit here and worry all the time. That's a different, that's the cousin of Mr. Freeze. Number four is the blame shifter. Whatever's going on, I've got nothing to learn from it. I could change nothing. I can do nothing. It's always somebody else's fault. The reason why I'm having this difficult time right now, the reason why I got this flat tire, if my ex-wife hadn't left me 13 years ago, I wouldn't be getting this flat tire right now. And, and it's probably the government's fault too. And I blame Obama. Whatever, you know, there's always someone else to point the finger at. Whatever the hardship is, whatever the suffering is, whatever the pain is, I just don't deal with it by pointing it at somebody else. Number five, the cliche bomber. This is the person that always shows up in the moment of hardship, pain, and trial with just a well-placed Hallmark card quote, right? Uh, you know, and you feel like, you feel like man, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that truth you're sharing, but I just kind of feel like you're not really entering into my world with me, right? This is the, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, well, the reason is that terrible and I'm mad right now. Or, or they show up, you know, with quotes from like that great theologian, you know, Dory the fish, just keep swimming, right? Or, uh, or, you know, they say things like, well, you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window, like God has OCD or something, right? Just, they've always got some sort of quote for, for every minute. It's like, okay, I don't need your quotes. I need your presence. I need your friendship. I need your love, there's the denier, number six, the denier. This, some, this is a person who's very zen. 
They're very zen. Uh, somebody after the first service also called this person the stoic, right? What suffering? What pain? It's all just an illusion. Pain is all in your mind. Pain is just fear leaving the body or whatever. That's, you know, those stupid quotes you hear at the gym, right? Uh, <laughs> I, th- I always think of uh, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the one, the knight who gets his arm lopped off. He's like, merely a flesh wound, right? You know, it's just the denier. What pain, what suffering, what hardship. And then actually, Michael, one of our staff members, helped me identify number seven. This is probably the worst. This is when the denier and, and the cliche bomber get together and have a baby and out comes Mr. Positivity. Because they still drop cliches, but somehow they still refuse to deny that anything's actually wrong. At least the cliche bomber's like, oh, poor baby, just keep swimming, right? But the, the Mr. Positivity shows up as like, what pain, you know? I, you know, what, he quotes like, you know, you just got to change your thinking or you just got to raise your gaze or I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? You guys hear those things, right? <laughs> okay, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and please no, you know, no taking, taking score right now, but which one do you tend towards? When pain, all, all of them, okay? Tahoma is a seven for seven, thank you. When, when pain comes, when hardship comes, what's your natural proclivity? What's your sinful bent? Which way do you deal with pain and hardship and suffering? That's really the heart of the question that we're trying to answer you know, in today's passage. If, if we're Christians, how are we to deal with suffering and hardship and pain? And really, of all kinds. We're talking about a very broad range. And I know that... Um, let me just say this at the outset. Sometimes, especially in our global world, in our media-informed world, we know that our Christian brothers and sisters around the world are suffering in ways that are, are just beyond what we go through. Amen? Uh, you know, we see the, the things like the Syrian refugee crisis where there are literally hundreds of thousands of uh, not only Christians, but Muslims and others who are just displaced. But we can, we can say like, oh, you know, my suffering's not really that bad. Let me just acknowledge, yes, that's a good and healthy perspective to have, but that doesn't diminish the fact that sometimes we go through some really difficult things. Even as Westerners, even as Americans, even as people with, generally speaking, money in the bank and resources at our disposal, cancer is still real. Relational breakups are still real. Stress and pain and lack of uh, uh, um, fulfillment in jobs, for, for especially for some of you men, is a real thing. Family members die. People betray your trust. We, we do have real pain and real suffering. So I just want to acknowledge that at the outset. Yes, we can always point to worse suffering, but let's not do so to diminish the, the pain and the suffering that, that many of us are feeling right now. Even just looking around this room right now, I don't know everybody, but I know enough to know that some of you are walking through some deeply painful circumstances in life right now. So how do we deal with it? How do we avoid these, these seven unbiblical and and false responses to pain and suffering. That's the heart of the question we're going to seek to answer today. And let me at the outset just tell you, here's the big idea for us today to really wrap our minds around. It's this, for the Christian, God is not a judge to be feared, but a loving father who disciplines us for our good. Okay? Okay? If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him for salvation, then your relationship with God is not that of a judge who you should fear, but that of a loving father who, yes, does take us through times and seasons of even painful discipline for our good. And as we look at the subject of discipline today, we're going to see three big ideas. We're going to see the shape of discipline. 
really a definition. What, what is discipline? How are we to understand discipline? We're going to see the heart of discipline, particularly the father's heart of love toward his children. And then we're going to see the goal of discipline, the, the end to which our loving Heavenly Father is taking us. And we're going to, in order to do that, take these verses a little bit out of order. So let me talk first about the shape of discipline. We'll look in verses 7 and then 10 and 11 as well. Verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And then jumping ahead to verse 10, for they are our earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me share with you a few observations from these verses. The first one is this, when we understand what discipline is, it's this, that discipline is both corrective and formative. There are two sides to what discipline is. And I say that to you because it's really important for you to understand that discipline is not the same thing as punishment. I'm going to get into that much, much more detail later on, but just at the outset, some of you are instantly thinking punishment. And we're talking about discipline. Discipline is, is corrective, if you're, if you're uh, maybe a, a music student, you're taking piano lessons, your piano teacher is going to help you be disciplined. They're going to say, oh, no, not that. You know, keep your fingers rounded or, or play it softer there, play it louder there. They're going to they're correct things that are wrong. But a good music teacher is also going to want to form things in you. Hey, let's put some expression in there. Let's, let's talk about artistry. Let's talk about how to get your, uh, you know, the notes faster or smoother, whatever it might be. There's a corrective aspect and there's a formative aspect. We talk about, you know, somebody needing to be disciplined, but, but think about this. What do you call somebody who gets up every single day at 5 a.m. and goes jogging? What do you call that person? Crazy. Crazy. Okay, thank you. That's, that, was the, that was what I was expecting. I heard somebody said discipline, but I heard more people say crazy. So Family Feud survey says crazy is the number one answer. You got it. No, we talk about that person. If somebody gets up every day and goes and exercise, we say they're a disciplined person. Or if somebody is able to manage their finances well, they're able to save appropriately and they're able to contribute to the church and give to the needs of others and they're able to say no to themselves sometimes when there's an impulse purchase that they just want to splurge and spend their money on. They say no to themselves. We call that person a disciplined person. There are certain things, I like to think of it this way, there are certain things, unhealthy things that have been cut out of them and there are certain positive things that have been built into them. Those of you who are parents, you know this with your children. To discipline your children doesn't mean you're punishing them or rubbing their nose in things all the time or just crushing their spirits. You actually want to teach them and train them and grow them. So remember that first and foremost, that, that when you hear discipline, it's both corrective and formative. Think holistically about discipline. The second thing, and this really is just kind of a no-duh point, but the second thing is that discipline is not pleasant. Discipline is not pleasant. The author of Hebrews in, in verse 11 has one of the most you know, obvious verses in all of Scripture. At the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And yet, how many of us have bought into the lie that we are somehow owed by God a pleasant existence. God owes me a pleasant life. God owes me a pain-free existence. Friends, there are preachers out there who will try to say things like that to you. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Every day can be a Friday. And to that I say nonsense, but inside I'm saying even stronger words, okay? 
Jesus himself said, in this life, you will face many trials, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Oh, that's good news. God does not owe you a pain-free, problem-free, pleasant-only life. And dare I say that those of us who live in the North Seattle suburbs, Seattle suburbia, we are some of the most prone to believing this lie. Think about the suburbs. Why do the suburbs exist? Comfort, convenience, everything in its neat, nice, tidy little box. You've got your lawn, you've got your sidewalk, maybe you have a fence, you've got your two-car garage that you can pull in and out of and avoid all, not only verbal contact, but even eye contact with your neighbors. That's very convenient. Some of those neighbors are weird and uncomfortable. Go to your favorite third place, Netflix. You've got money in the savings. You've got money in your 401k. I mean, the suburbs are set up for pleasure and comfort and convenience. And yet, one of the worst things that could possibly happen to us is that we just have a nice, pleasant life. That, that's, that's a tragedy. Because God has built us for more than just pleasantness. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? God has built us for relationship with him. God has built us to be on mission with him. God has built us to be in community with others. God has built us for all sorts of things that in our sinful, fallen nature, we, we, we shy away from, we try to gravitate away from. Friends, if you're going through hardships right now, you should rejoice because it at least means that you're alive. Don't be a zombie. Don't be a suburban zombie, just sleeping, breathing. What's those rapper, I think Lecrae's one said, breathing to death. Just, just existing, just comfortable, bored. No, discipline's not pleasant. And we need to admit that and understand that. Because until we can understand that, we're going to run away from it. The third thing we can see is that discipline, the shape of discipline, discipline should, should help us to ask good questions. Okay, admit it. How many of you, when going through difficult, painful, hard circumstances, have ever said the, why is this happening to me, God, prayer? Just show of hands, admit it. Okay, now we pray that prayer, I believe, because we'd like to get out of whatever uncomfortable circumstances we're in as quickly as possible. Why is this happening, God? Because I don't want it to be happening anymore, and if I knew why it was happening, then I could deal with it and be, be done with it. I don't want to go through the valley of the shadow of death. I'd like to go around it. Why is this happening, God? Now listen, there's a very good and healthy place for self-reflection if you're really struggling financially, yeah, it might be good to look back and say, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have bought, you know, that, all those lotto tickets, and maybe I shouldn't have, you know, bought that pony off of Craigslist, or whatever it is, you know, like, if you've made foolish decisions financially, and now you're feeling the pinch with your money, yeah, you need to self-reflect, and you need to try to learn from it, but, but the question shouldn't be, why is this happening to me, God? It should be, God, what do you want to teach me in this season? And I get that from verse 7. In verse 7, we use the English Standard Version translation, the ESV. In verse 7, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. 
And actually doing some study on that, looking in the original languages and looking at how others have translated, I actually think that that's not the best way to translate that phrase in the Greek. Looked at about five other translations and they all translated it this way. They, they say, endure hardship as discipline. Endure your suffering as discipline. So, whatever you're going through, if it's hard, suffering, pain of any sort, you can view it as discipline, something that God wants to use to shape you both in a corrective and in a formative sort of way. I actually lived this experience about, right about two years ago. Uh, some of you have been around, you remember there was a really, really difficult season in the life of our church. And as I evaluated it, you know, God, kind of the why am I going through this? Why am I suffering? I was forced to wrestle with these things and there was so little that was actually in my control. And there was so little that I could actually say, yes, I did this. I'm in this position because I did this. I really didn't. It was, it was the decisions of others. It was the actions of others. But God spoke this verse to my heart and I, I, I hope I don't sound overdramatic when I say that that verse literally saved my life. Because I was so anxious, I was so stressed, I was so just devastated and disappointed and hurt, but God said to me, endure your hardship as discipline. God was teaching me things in that moment. God was cutting things out of me in that season. God was building things into me. God was preparing me for other things, maybe even things that I haven't even walked through yet. What are you going through? What suffering are you experiencing? What hardship do you need to view as discipline from your father. Endure hardship as discipline. Don't ask, why is this happening to me so you can get out of it? Ask God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to grow in me? What do you want to cut out of me in this season of suffering? That's the shape of discipline. It's corrective and formative. It's not pleasant. And it forces us to start asking the right types of questions. But let's look now at the heart of discipline. Go back to verse five with me if you would. It says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, where we're picking up here in verse five, you have to rewind about a month uh, to the last time we were in the book of Hebrews. We've just finished looking at this list of these examples, these heroes of the faith. And the author of Hebrews concludes that list with a look at Jesus, the greatest example of faith, the greatest hero, and not only the greatest example of faith, but actually the author and finisher of our faith, the one who went all the way to the cross to secure our salvation, the shedding of his blood. So we've just landed the plane in, in big dramatic fashion on the person and the work of Jesus, and now he turns to our response. Have you forgotten this exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then our author quotes from Hebrews. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary. Don't get weary. Don't get worn out when reproved or corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, that's correct in a strong manner, every son whom he receives. And then our author of Hebrews picks back up his own thoughts. He says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. We just looked at that. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as, what's the word, Sound City? Sons. And that term in the Greek is gender inclusive. Sons and daughters. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. What a strong phrase. You are bastard sons if you are not disciplined. Feel the weight of that. You are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Let me just say right now, some of you have a really hard time reading these verses because in your experience growing up, you did not experience the discipline of a loving father. You experienced the wrath of an angry parent. Maybe it was a father, maybe it was a mother. You did not receive discipline that was for your good, for your teaching, for your training. You just received venting. Maybe it was verbal abuse, screaming, yelling, physical abuse. Some of you have experienced really hard things and it's hard for you to hear this passage about the loving discipline of a good heavenly father without just cringing a little bit inside. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit, even right now in this moment, is settling over your heart that you can hear what I think can be a very healing word for you. What I think is something that God would want to actually use for your restoration and for your redemption and for your joy. I'm acknowledging that what you went through is hard and painful and I'm asking you to fight to not look at your heavenly father through the lens of your earthly father or mother, but see God as he has revealed himself to us. I even just pray right now, Holy Spirit, help us to cut through our own experiences. Help us to believe that your word is more true than even our experiences. The author of Hebrews is quoting from Proverbs. That the context of Proverbs is a father training his son. And what's really, really important to note, again, I mentioned it a minute ago and I want to spend some time on this. We look in these verses is this. Discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Discipline is not the same thing as punishment. I spent some time this week doing word study. I found that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, there are about three words that are used for discipline, translated as discipline. And in the New Testament Greek, there are three words that are used for discipline in the New Testament Greek. And they all have a range of meaning. You know, languages are like that. There's not a direct one-to-one correlation. There's kind of a range of meaning. And so you see these words in the Greek, sometimes they're translated as teaching, or training, or correction, or self-discipline even. That's, that's the range of meaning, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. That's what discipline means. Discipline means teaching, training, forming, shaping, growing. I looked at the word punishment. There are more words for punishment, 13 approximately in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and about five in the New Testament in the Greek, And the range of meaning on those words, what they can be translated as is very different. Listen to this list. Justice, equity, settling accounts, repayment, guilt, vengeance, judge, governor, blame. See the difference in the range of meaning? See, 
judgment and punishment have to do with a crime that has been committed and now recompense must be made. In our United States legal system, we have a saying, the punishment must what? Must fit the crime. If you stole a loaf of bread, we don't give you the death penalty. We shouldn't anyways. If you, if you commit murder, we don't fine you $500 and send you on your way. The punishment must fit the crime. The scales must be even. That's what punishment is all about. Punishment is about saying a line has been crossed, a debt has been incurred, some wrong has been committed, and now it must be made right somehow. But that's very different than discipline, isn't it? Punishment is, is looking through the lens of equality. It's just looking through the lens of the scales. But, but discipline is actually focused on the person. I love you. I care about you. Yeah, maybe you need corrected or, or changed or shaped or, or, or something, but, but I actually want to see you grow. I want to see you be made different. Do you see the difference, friends? This is so important for us to know the difference between punishment and discipline. Side note, for those of you that are parents of young children or going to be parents of young children, I would just encourage you not only to get your head and your heart in the right place, but get your terminology in the right place. Don't punish your children. Discipline your children. Because you're not the judge, you're the mom and the dad. It's really good news to know that the Christian, number two, is not under judgment. The Christian is not under judgment. The Christian is not going to get punished. How do we know this? Let me take you through some bad news first. First is this. God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge of heaven and earth and all creation. And I know that we live in a culture that bristles at the thought of there being a higher power who created things and says, this is how I've created things, this is how I've ordered things, and this is how I expect things to go. But Isaiah 33, the prophet says, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. So even though we think that man is the measure of all things, that's just simply not true. God is the measure of all things. The second thing, we got to go through the bad news before we can get to the good news. The second thing is this. On our own, we all stand before God guilty and condemned. Again, we often fall into this pattern of thinking that says, as long as I'm better than so-and-so, I'm, I'm better than my neighbor, I'm more morally upright than my coworker. I'm better than my dad before me. But the problem is that God has said, as the rightful lawgiver and judge of the world, God has said that the standard is not better than somebody else. The standard is what, Sound City? Perfection. The bar is perfection. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll have no part of the kingdom of heaven. Who, the scribes and Pharisees, by the way, had memorized the first five books of the Bible and tithed out of their spice jar. They were so precise in giving to God. How are you doing on that this week? The standard is not pretty good, the standard is not God grading on a curve. The, the, the bar that God has set as the rightful judge and lawgiver of the universe has said perfection. And if you fail to meet perfection, you on your own stand guilty and condemned. Let that rest on you for a minute. There's no one that has measured up. 
If you look in the the book of Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he starts this quote fest from the Psalms, from the Proverbs, from the prophets. He just continues to pile it on verse after verse after verse, saying things like, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. What a metaphor. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of serpents is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. On and on and on it goes. There's no one who can stand before God the judge. Except for one. Jesus. Jesus came, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, raised by by Joseph and Mary as his earthly parents, but knowing God the Father as his true Father. Jesus lived a life free from sin. Jesus actually stood up in front of the crowds and said, who of you can accuse me of any wrongdoing? That means that when Jesus went to the cross to die for us, it means that he actually was able to pay the debt that we owe. Friends, only Jesus truly measures up. The Apostle Paul says that, that Jesus knew no sin. The Apostle Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, one of Jesus' closest companions, said that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus has perfectly met the requirements for God the judge. Jesus has perfectly met the bar. You know how sometimes you... you look to somebody as a good example for you, but they're actually such a good example, you can get a little bit depressed. You ever experienced that? Uh, I've had this as a musician. You know, I, I play music and learning guitar, and then I'll, I'll go see some world-class performer, and I'm, and I'm inspired and discouraged. And I walk out feeling, I could never do that. I probably should just quit now, right? Jesus can be a little bit like that. Jesus, yes, obviously is an example for us to follow as Christians, but, but the problem is he's, he's too good of an example. He's perfect. And so if we're always trying to measure up the standard of Jesus, well, guess what? We're always going to be disappointed because he's the only one that truly measures up. But here's where the news gets really good, Sound City. Because of Jesus' perfection, he alone can take our judgment. He alone is able to pay for our sin. He alone is able to take the wrath that we deserve because of our wrongdoing. 1 John 4, the Apostle John says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, if you've sinned against a holy and infinite and eternal God, well, guess what needs to be paid back? An infinite repayment. You are incapable of paying back to God the debt that you owe. Did you know that? Even if you tried for all of eternity, you could never repay back the debt that you owed. That's why we need the sacrifice of Jesus because he alone is eternal. He alone is infinite. He alone is perfectly holy and he alone can perfectly pay God back. And so our redemption is not found in our works, but in his work. We don't come before God as our judge anymore. We don't fear him in that sense. We are now pardoned. The gavel has been slammed down. Jesus took the wrath we deserve, and our verdict is not guilty from now and through eternity. Is that good news? Man, that's good news. Whew. I'm glad I remember how to preach after a month off. This is, this is 
I was a little nervous this morning. This is about being restored back into right relationship. God forgiving us of our sins, pardoning us, the, the guilty verdict, verdict going on Jesus, the not guilty verdict going on us. Now, now, now that that's dealt with, now that that justifi justification has been dealt with, what about the rest of our lives? What about walking it out? What about living it out? Shall we just do whatever we want? The Apostle Paul says, shall we just sin more so that grace can abound? By no means. This is the third part. We see that a loving father disciplines his children. A loving father disciplines his children. Our culture has adopted a definition of love that means never correct me. Never tell me I'm wrong. Never tell me that anything needs to change. Always tell me I'm a snowflake and very unique and very precious. And in fact, if you say things like, well, you're wrong or you need to change, you need to correct, you get put labels on like you're hateful. Isn't that just like the enemy to take the very definition of hate, which is indifference, and reverse it? Think about it. The ultimate form of hate is indifference. If I hate you, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to let you go. If I hate my child, I'll never correct them. If I hate my children, I'll let them play near the railroad tracks. If I hate my children, I'll let them play near a busy street. If I hate my children, all I'm going to do is just let them eat whatever they want. Because as we know, children make great dietary choices when they're three years old. They would live on cotton candy and probably like some chemicals that are underneath the sink. Like kids are not the best judges for themselves of what they should do. You as a loving parent, you step in and you correct them. That is the definition of love. And it's not done out of a selfish, I have to get you to do what I want motive. It's done out of a heart of, I want you to succeed. I want you to thrive. I want you to be well. That is the loving heart of our Father, our Heavenly Father to us. He disciplines us for our good because He loves us. Remember, Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from His love. If you're a Christian, the Apostle Paul, he just kind of loses his mind. Heights, depths, angels, principalities, powers. He says nothing in all of creation. Like, well, you pretty much summed it up there, Apostle Paul. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. When you are going through hardship, there might be all sorts of reasons why, but the one thing you can know for sure is you are not going through hardship because God is punishing you or because he doesn't love you. You can know that for sure, dear Christian. But he disciplines us for our good. In verse eight, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an illegitimate child. I want to grow. I want to be disciplined. And the more you understand about the heart of God, your father, the more you'll see that he has good in mind for you. And we'll get to that in a minute here. Let me just sum up this section by saying this. A Christian may sin and so fall under the displeasure of their loving father, but never under the wrath of the righteous judge. When you sin, God's not happy about it. God's not, yay, they've, they're sinning. They're just practicing their grace, their freedom so well. No, that's not God's heart. But there's a, world of difference between a loving father who says, hey, we need to work on some things 
and the righteous judge who says, you stand condemned. Do you get it? Some of you have been Christians for a long time. You still need to get this difference deep, deep, deep in your heart. A Christian may sin and so fall under the displeasure of their loving father, but never under the wrath of the righteous judge. And then let's look at the goal of discipline where God's leading this. Verse 10, for they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's two goals stated. One is to share his holiness. And the second one is this peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, I don't know exactly what the peaceful fruit of righteousness is, but it sounds awesome and I want it, okay? I really think these are basically two ways of saying the same thing, that God disciplines us so that we can be more like Jesus. So we can be made more like Jesus. See, mankind was created to be image bearers of God. Amen? Image bearers of God. We were meant to reflect what God is like. We were meant to be like uh, kind of a mirror, so to speak. God's image reflecting in a mirror. We shine out what God's like to the whole world. And that's male, female, white, black, brown, rich, poor, Seahawks fan, 49ers fan. I really had to work hard on practicing saying that all are image bearers of God, okay? Christian and non-Christian. Non-Christians are image bearers of God, amen? Now, we all, because of sin, are, are bent and warped and distorted. It's like when you, when you go to the fair here in a couple of weeks and you go past the funhouse mirrors and your torso is all you know, weird and bloated looking. Or maybe that's just because you ate too much fair food. But um, you, know, you go past those mirrors and everything's like kind of warped and messed up. That's what our sin does. We don't adequately or accurately reflect the image of God. That's what sin has done to us. But because of Jesus... We are now being remade. The Apostle Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Jesus is bending us back into shape and he's stretching us and he's putting the broken pieces of the mirror back in place so that throughout the course of our lives, we more and more and more reflect what Jesus is like. It's not just us as individuals, though. It's us as a church. God puts us in relationship, in community, in a local church. Guess what? The church is messy, because God is working out a lot of these things in the context of relationships. Some of you are having conflict with people that you know and love, even in your own community groups or in your church. That's God giving you an opportunity for his loving discipline to work on you. Don't say, God, fix that person. Say, God, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to shape me? How do you want to remake me to be more in the image and likeness of Jesus? And guess what? It's not even the church. It's the whole world. The Bible says that God is working on things until all things are united under Christ. The plan is to actually remake the whole world. Guess what? One day Jesus will return. Sin and rebellion and sickness and death will all be done away with and we'll get to see people and the universe all as God intended. Does anyone long for that day? And in the meantime, we keep following step by step by step. That's where this is headed. We are going to be made more like Jesus. We are going to gain the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But notice, friends, when will this peaceful fruit of righteousness come? Later, right? Like, oh, things were going so great right up until that word. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later... 
Notice the metaphor of fruit. The Bible is full of agricultural metaphors, and if you've ever grown a plant or tried to grow fruit or any vegetation, you know that it just takes time. How many of you wish that there was microwave discipleship? How many of you wish, like, I love the microwave, I love that button that is just 30 seconds and go. Like that one button, that is my favorite thing. I don't even have to push three, zero, start. I just push one button and it goes. I'm so happy about that. And I know I'm not alone. Sometimes we come with that mindset to God. God, I'm gonna read these verses, I'm asleep, and then tomorrow I'll be all better, right? That peaceful fruit of righteousness is just gonna sprout up in me tomorrow. No, later. It's gonna grow. It's gonna take time. The Lord is patient with us. The Lord is slow, slower than we wish sometimes. But boy, is he faithful, amen? So endure, persevere, keep going, don't give up. God is not aimless in his discipline for your life. God has a goal, God has a purpose, and friends, it is good. So don't give up. Don't run away from the conflict. Don't avoid the pain. Don't just freeze and hope that nothing happens. Press into it. Hope that something does happen. God loves you. That's such a simple thing. We say it at church. It could sound so cliche, but I mean this genuinely. God loves you in whatever circumstances you're facing right now. If you are a Christian, it's not because God doesn't love you, but because he has good for you. Let me just close with a couple of thoughts. If you're a Christian and you're going through hardship right now, We empathize with you. I'm gonna pray that God would minister to you, provide peace in your heart. Pray that God would surround you with non-cliche bomber Christians who could just come around you and love you and care for you. Maybe you know why the suffering's happening. Maybe you really don't know why. Maybe it wasn't even something you necessarily did. But throughout all of it, I pray that you'd press into the love that's yours from your heavenly Father. Others of you, you're not going through suffering right now. You're experiencing a a decently peaceful time in life. And so what I would say to you is this. Get these truths deep down in your bones because it's not a matter of if, but when. It's not a matter of if, but when. Jesus said, build your house on the rock. That way when the storm comes, you'll actually be able to weather the storm and withstand it. So build your life on these truths. Build your lives on these ideas. Understand the difference between God's wrath on the non-Christian and God's love of a father in even our hardships and our pains. And lastly, some of you here today are not Christians. And and I love you. I really genuinely do. And I want you to understand um, a prayer that I pray for you. And and when I tell you this prayer that I pray for you, uh, you might get mad at me. But I pray that God ruins your comfortable life. Because the worst possible thing that could happen is you have a just nice, pleasant 85 years and then you die and spend eternity separated from God. And that you stand before God, the righteous judge, on your own merit instead of on Jesus' merit. So I love you. I know that's probably an offensive thing to pray. Like, God, would you just mess with them? I don't, I don't mean that flippantly. Like, I'm gonna be here for you as best I can when that happens, but don't trade the riches of the love of God for earthly comfort and pleasantries.
It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And don't let it be someday. I, I invite you, give your sin to Jesus today. Receive his grace, receive his mercy in your life. Join us in a few minutes here around the communion table as we celebrate the death of Jesus, his body broken, his blood poured out for us. Join with us and know for once and for all that, that you don't have to experience God as the righteous judge, you experiencing him as loving father. Let that be yours today. Before we even move any further, I just wanna pray. Would you just join with me in prayer right now? God, God, we bring our discomforts and our pains before you right now. Father, some here today are, are really struggling. Some here today are struggling because of present circumstances. Some are struggling because they look back over past circumstances and they just have a hard time believing that you're a loving father. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would settle over their hearts and minds in a very fresh and very powerful way, even right now. We take authority over the lies of the enemy, the enemy that would wanna come in and say, oh, you're suffering because God doesn't love you. We speak against that lie right now. God, we ask that you just break the jaw of the liar and you'd allow the truth to penetrate deep into the heart right now. God, I ask and pray for maybe those of us who are not necessarily in a season of suffering, but would you help us to just come around those who are, to empathize deeply, to care, to love, to walk, to be faithful, to be present, to point to Jesus. And God, for anyone who's here today who's not yet a Christian, I pray you'd show your goodness and your love to them in a new way and they would find their heart drawn to respond to you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.